Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. In this episode, we're looking at Romans 9, 20 to 23, and the metaphor that's used there of God as a potter with Dr. Jason Staples. Uh, Jason Staples is an ancient historian, author, speaker, journalist, voice actor, former American football coach, and a current uh, college football analyst. He is an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at, and I was trying to figure out with Will how to say this as a Canadian, is it NC State University yeah, NC or State, North Carolina yeah. State? Yeah, we have all these little nicknames for all of our colleges. <laughs> You're going to have to pick up on these. Right. Um, he is the author of The Idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism. A New Theory of People, Exile, and Israelite Identity, which just recently came out with Cambridge University Press. Um, now, for the purposes of this conversation, uh, Jason is the author of a very interesting article that was just recently published in the Harvard Theological Review, uh, where he discusses the image of God as a potter. And it's a very fascinating article. What's the title of that article, Jason? Uh, the article is Vessels of Wrath and God's Pathos, Potter clay imagery in Romans nine twenty to twenty three. Right. Okay. But before we get into the article, I just have a question for you, Jason. So you played college football, is that right? Played is a very generous term. Uh, I practiced. <laughs> uh, you know. So if we're talking about my college football career, you can cue Allen Iverson and say we talk about practice, man. Not the game. Not not the game. We talk about so, practice, man. So practice. so where did you practice college football? At Florida State uh, University, which is where I did my uh, my BA and my MA. Um, well, it's unfortunate, really. I was afraid you were going to say that. I had this this feeling that that's where you played because I'm a huge Gator fan. I'm going back for generations. We're Florida fans. Uh, I have uh, my grandfather, my dad two uncles and my brother all played for Florida. Uh, so we, we're going to get over that beef though. And we're going to look at this text. It's going to be okay. So we can talk about college football all day, but that's not what this podcast is about. You've got other podcasts that talk about college football. We're talking about Romans nine, 20 to 23. And I'm interested first off to ask you what attracted you to this particular text? Why did you decide to spend the time and effort to analyze this text in this detailed way? So this was actually a trajectory that emerged out of my book on Paul, which is uh, coming. It should be released early next year. Uh, it'll be uh, it'll be called uh, Paul and the Resurrection of Israel. Uh, and this is basically a it was basically a rabbit trail that that I found needed to be pulled, you know, a, a thread that needed to be pulled out, a rabbit trail that needed to be explored a good bit more in detail than I could in the book chapter that I was working on. Uh, which was mostly on Romans nine. And basically I wound up, you know, and you, you, you've probably had this experience where you wind up writing something and it just keeps growing on the thing that you're writing on. And then you sort of sit back and you're like, I think that's good and interesting and all, but man, that's kind of going, that's kind of distracting from the main point I want to make here right now. So mm -hmm, I ended up mm -hmm. cutting it and, um, and then in the process of cutting that, and, you know, I kept, you know, certain parts of it and rewrote certain parts to fit within the chapter. But uh, in the process of cutting it, you know, I came out with something that I thought worked well as a standalone article. So now let me read verses 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, O human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? 
including us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. All right, so there's the passage. Jason, how do you see this passage fitting into the book of Romans as a whole? And perhaps how does it relate to what comes before and after? The main thing that I think is happening here is, uh, first of all, it's it's a critical part of the larger argument, which I think is not just the argument of Romans 9 to 11, but I think this is this is central to Romans as a whole of God's dealing, how God has dealt with Israel and how God has justly dealt with Israel. Uh, so there's an element of theodicy of of arguing for the specific uh uh, a specific, the specific character of God as just and specifically mm-hmm. just towards his people, Israel. Uh, and, and this is something that Paul is heavily invested in and he wants to explain as a part of the, the larger argument in, in Romans. So that's number one is, is he's looking at that. Now, the, the real question then that, that this is getting at is if God has been, uh, if large portions say of Israel have been hardened like Pharaoh, and then there are people from other nations that are now participating in the promises made to Israel, which is essentially the argument that he's made through the first eight chapters of, of Romans is, mm-hmm. look, these Gentiles are, are receiving the spirit. This is, you know, this is fulfillment of what the, pro- the prophets promised. Well, the natural response is, yeah, but the prophets didn't promise it to them. <laughs> and this is where he kind of right. comes in and says, okay, so let me step back and explain how this fits into the larger framework of biblical of the biblical narrative as it were or the narrative of israel if you if you prefer uh and how god is not actually sort of shifting switching horses midstream god is staying on the same horse and he's actually been operating in this way all along and that's what he does when he starts romans 9 is he says look this is not this is not different from how god has dealt with his people in the past you go back to abraham and abraham gets the promise to his seed and it's promised the, the promise passes through Isaac and not Ishmael. And then Isaac is the promised seed, the Behor, and, uh, uh, you know, he's the, he's the rightful heir. And it passes to Jacob and not Esau. God does this. And then, of course, he opens the chapter with an allusion to the golden calf episode, which is, uh, you know, I wish I, you know, I, 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 uh, I wish I could be, uh, accursed as, as it's often translated, uh, uh, mm-hmm. on behalf of, of my kinsmen according to the flesh, which is exactly what Moses does in that moment of, of the, uh, of the golden mm-hmm. calf. And then he wraps that whole thing with the statement that God answers Moses with when Moses stands and, and, and intercedes for Israel. He comes in and says, well, this is the answer that God gave Moses. And guess what? That's the answer that God's giving me too. That's the implication, right? This is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then that, you know, so so he's basically saying God's operated this way all along. Well, then the next accusation, the natural accusation is what we what we have put forward. And he sort of puts it in the mouth of, a, of, of an interlocutor, if, as it were, where he says, well, then you will say to me. Uh, which is interesting, by the way, because it implies that his interlocutor is actually the audience itself. Um, but, you know, so here's the here's the next rebuttal is, well, then how is God just? If if this is all yeah. God's control, if everything's under God's control, then w- what are we doing? Right. Let's just let God do right. his thing. Then Isra- Israel's Israel's lack of response is God ultimately fault. can be attributed to God, right? Right. Yeah. 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 And so control of who 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 makes it and who doesn't. Basically. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's what he's getting at in this, and he wants to explain. Okay. Look, this is not this this is not how that works exactly. So this this passage sort of serves as a bridge between those arguments at the beginning of the chapter about the patriarchs and the Exodus and the pattern about how God works as a whole to help explain what's happening in the present. And then in the process, as that hinge, it it serves as a defense of God's fundamental character and says, no, God, in fact, is just. So God does exercise choice, but we have to understand how that choice gets made and how God is actually working here with humanity. And that's Mm. that's where this sort of serves as that hinge point within the larger the larger passage and that's where that question of why does he still find fault for in the the translation that you use there uh says for who can resist his will uh 
that that's not what that says, right? It's in the perfect who has resisted his will. Uh, and that's an important change, which we'll talk about, uh, I'm sure, later later in this. Yeah. But that's the real question is, okay, look, I mean, are we all just doing whatever? Are we all just automatons doing whatever God says, and this is just basically a sick divine joke? Or is there something else here? And he then puts forward this image as his defense of the image of a just God. Yeah. And what do you find as the most difficult part of this specific passage here in 20 to 23 to interpret? Um, so I think the, the thing that makes this difficult is, is, is in large measure the same thing that makes a lot of the Pauline epistles difficult. And, and that's that this is, it's a really tightly compressed passage. Uh, and it actually is, it, it's got an anakaluthan. It's got a, you know, it, it's ungrammatical in a, in, in, mm-hmm. in a specific part. And it's kind of hard to relate certain parts together. It's like he just sort of stops his, his sentence and then moves on to something else. Uh, and this happens in speech all the time. <laughs> and we learn to do it. But, right. you know, we learn to, to deal with it. But it does, in, in, in this kind of context, make things a little tricky. The other thing is it, that goes with that is that he's engaging in deep, inner biblical exegesis and illusion in this very highly compressed bit. So it's really compressed language that includes illusions and exegesis of multiple biblical passages together. And he's doing all of that, you know, in a bite-sized piece. And then to, to understand what he's, what he's doing here, you, you basically have to be immersed in and completely fluent in the Old Testament, the other Testament in the two Testaments, as it were, uh, mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible, that is Paul's Bible. You have to be immersed right. in that enough to be able to follow what he's doing. I mean, and, and I think in a lot of respects, reading uh, reading of the Pauline epistles is a lot like reading the Mishnah Talmud in that respect. I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with, with reading and, and, you know, your audience, many of your audiences probably never picked up a page of, of Mishnah or Talmud, Talmud. And I suggest going and looking some up. Uh, you know, it's easy to Google some pages of Mishnah or Talmud, and you'll find that, first of all, it's fascinating material. But second of all, you'll realize, like, oh, my gosh, this is just so dense. Can you just uh, explain uh, Mishnah and Talmud for yeah, the so audience, what those are? The, yeah, the Mishnah is, and the Talmud are two later rabbinic uh, uh, bodies of literature. Uh, the Mishnah was, was codified uh, around uh, 200 BCE, and it's basically a... a uh, an organized set of oral tradition framed together to to talk about specific issues and uh, legal interpretations and and all and how to understand the Torah uh, by rabbis who had lived before two hundred, and then the Talmud is commentary on the Mishnah but by rabbis who lived two hundred of the Common Era, right? Yeah, two hundred of the Common, common Era, two hundred yeah. CE. Yeah. So this is yeah. after Paul. Um, and the, the Talmud is another uh, another um, uh, few hundred years later, about 400 years later, and it's basically commentary from the rabbis who lived and commented on the Mishnah, and they're interacting with its you know various uh, debates and engagements and all of that, and you've got layers of material in all of this, and in each case, these are people who are who are just immersed in Torah. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. and they know their their Bibles backwards and forwards and inside out. And then when they debate one another, you know, they can cite half of one verse right. along with half of another verse and kind of expect that the uh, that their other person is, that they're talking to or that the reader is able to follow that they're actually pulling on elements from each story, and they don't even tag that they're. <laughs> That <laughs> they're quoting those things, right, right? Exactly. And Paul does the same sort of thing, and I think that's what makes this so difficult. Is there's a lot of shorthand, and there's a lot of uh, of places in here where he's referencing the 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 material of his Bible in such shorthand that if you don't recognize immediately that oh this is this this is this this is this and he's putting them together in this way and sort of stirring it up and presenting you a, a slightly different pic, pic, uh, picture with all of that mixture, it's going to be really hard to understand what he's doing. Yeah. Right. Paul, I mean, because the language is compressed, like you said, 
right? When we talked to Ross Wagner, he said that Paul's language is clipped. That's mm. the, the phrase he used. That's a really good way of putting that, it. That, that's exactly right. Is Paul's language and the rationale he uses is not always filled in. And so I think, like Jason said, you have to bring... Yep. Right. A bunch of stuff yep. <laughs> to the table to fill out what exactly is going on. And this is exactly why we have very different interpretations of this text, right. because interpreters are trying to piece together and fill in the gaps in the in Paul's language and logic. Mm -hmm. And that results in very different kinds of readings of this passage. But, Jason, why don't you tell us um what is one way in which the image of the potter and clay here in Romans 9 is maybe most commonly interpreted? I don't know <laughs> if it's most commonly interpreted this way, but, uh, you know, when I'm on campus, uh, like here at Sanford, a lot of my students, one of the theological questions they that really presses upon them, for some reason, it, uh, it coincides with people coming to college, this issue, you know, of like fate and freedom or, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, sovereignty and free will. Uh, what is the image here that is, you know, that the way this is often, how is this image often interpreted? So uh, before I'm going to stick a pin in that real quick, because there is actually one other thing to mention in terms of the difficulty sure. of, of interpretation and why Paul's language is clipped. I think it's important to understand that when he sent these letters, he didn't just send the letter. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is this is important for all of us to remember is that all of these are designed to be traditioned and read in community. And Paul, like Paul didn't just send Romans. He sent Romans with Phoebe. Right. Mm -hmm. And Phoebe's, you know, coming and, you know, her job is then going to be to help explain what's going on when, when, you know, okay, when, when he does this, he's meaning this. And so it then gets taught in this larger context. And so the tradition itself is, is designed to be, it's, it's a book that's designed to be meditated on in that kind of context and to be discussed. And, you know, this is where this kind of exactly what we're doing is, is what it's designed to do. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I think that's really important to, to remember is that, you know, Paul could have communicated and, you know, unclipped that language. But first of all, it would have taken a lot more space. And second of all, that's just mm -hmm. they communicated in person. And it was about uh, right. uh, about pursuing God together in person. And, and the tradition uh, was much more oral than what we often appreciate. But that's, that's pointing to another really important point that Jason's making, which is that all interpretation is community interpretation, mm -hmm. right. right? It always happens in the context of a community, yeah. which is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast and we're bringing in a range of different interpreters right. from different perspectives. So we get to broaden our community of interpretation. Yeah. But Paul is writing in a particular community mm -hmm. uh, and there that community has pre-understandings that they bring to a lot of this mm -hmm. imagery and we may not share that. Uh, so, yeah, so getting into the way that this is commonly Common, yeah. interpreted yeah. in a community like the one that Ronnie mentioned right. here in the southeast, how do people normally see this? So the, the basic and I think it is the most common, at least these days, way of, of reading it. Uh, and, and, and I think it's particularly among uh, those within the sort of Protestant world uh, where, the, where yeah. these questions end up being asked much more. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think there's quite the same level of of obsession with that question in, say, the Eastern Orthodox or or Roman Catholic right. uh, com uh, communion, uh, communions. Uh, I suspect that there's you know, uh, some reasons for that. Just historically, uh, you know, Paul does kind of have uh, uh, preeminence within the, the Protestant tradition for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. But but yeah, it is it is uh, a really common thing, and I think within. The, uh, those who are especially focused on it, the, the primary way of reading this is that Paul basically cites the Potter Clay passage, uh, not to not as a rebuttal, not to rebut the idea that God is arbitrary in his decision making, but that but as a defense that God has a right to to arbitrarily make those decisions. And that he basically comes in and says, yeah, well, you know, so who who, who can resist God's will? Well, nobody. And guess what? God has a right to do with you whatever he wants. And if he wants to right. make you in order to smash you at the end and in order for you to burn and barbecue in hell for for all eternity for his glory, then that's God's prerogative. And you should glorify God for uh, being such an amazing God uh, while you're barbecuing for all eternity, because, wow, look at God's glory. Uh, that mm -hmm. seems to be the way that this is read uh, as often right. as not. And. 
I, sure. I think that doesn't quite get what he's doing in the passage. Okay. Um, so before we get into some of the like nitty gritty textual, you know, analysis here, give us a brief and kind of like panoramic picture of how you understand the image of the potter and clay at work here. Well, I think the, so I think the place to start is actually how I, kind of became attuned to this particular passage in this way. Uh, and that actually goes back to when I was in my master's work. And uh, I had a roommate who was doing, an, uh, who was, it was either the end of my undergrad or the beginning of my master's. We, we were roommates for, for both. Um, and he came home, he was a uh, fine arts guy. And he came home, uh, he had a ceramics class where they had to do a lot of pottery. Um, okay. And he, he would come home frequently in the afternoon or evening just completely defeated just like oh man it was a miserable day like the like the clay just absolutely beat me today like i just got my butt kicked and i, I would listen to him talk about what it was like to be working with the clay and of course i'm working on you know biblical material and i'm going huh this is starting to sound like jeremiah or Mm-hmm. This is, oh, wait, that might actually, that might, if I think about it this way, that might actually change a little bit of the way that I understand what's going on in, in Romans Romans 9, is that the, you know, the clay has something to do with how the potter's actually working. And so that kind of got my my wheels turning. Uh, and then when I when I came through this passage, working on my chapter in Romans 9, you know, I'm going through reading very closely in Greek. And that's where I came across the, you know, the different terms that that I, I'm essentially challenging the the default ways that they're understood and saying this isn't actually mm-hmm. like if I'd read this you know without knowing any of the English translation I would not have rendered it this way because this is not the normal word for this it's a word mm-hmm. for this so um, so that's kind of how this this worked out and I think the main thing to understand coming in is that when potters are working with clay when you have someone who shapes clay and, and you can you know anybody in the audience can go and talk to someone who works with pottery uh you know master potters will all tell you this that clay is notorious for first of all when you put it on the wheel and you spin the wheel it feels like it's pushing back against you just because of the the force that's produced uh hmm. this uh uh, this, the, you know, the, the, the force that, that happens because of the spinning. So it feels like it's pushing against you. So it feels like it's resisting your hand to begin with. Mm-hmm. And secondly, clay is, is really temperamental. And the word that comes up over and over and over and over again, when you talk to people who work with clay is that clay has a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that in the article, actually, I, I went through and I, you know, I, I pointed to a variety of places where, you know, in, tutorials or you know different things about pottery you'd have these master potters be like well when you start working with clay you know and the first things you have to figure out is clay has a mind of its own and you just kind of have to learn to improvise on the fly and and work with within the constraints that the clay puts you under in order to get what you what what you want out of out of what you're trying to make you start with the image in your mind but you kind of have to work on the fly because the clay is just not going to let you go there naturally right and that i think once you come into the passage Understanding that part about how clay works and how, you know, the, a potter works with clay. When, once you have someone leverage that metaphor and say, well, God works with us like a potter, like a potter with clay is going to sound very different immediately. And of course, mm-hmm. in the ancient world, you know, potters were all over the place, right? You know, you've got the need for dishes to be made and all these in, in vessels of all sorts that are being made. And, you know, they're, you know, they're all over the place. And so people would be more familiar with this process than say today, where you might go down to Pottery Barn and, you know, buy your dishes for the next, you know, (laughs) dozen years or whatever. We're just not as familiar with that process as an ancient audience would be where, you know, odds are a lot of people in Paul's audience would know someone who works with clay. Right. And you, um, we might come to this a little bit later when you talk about clay having a mind of its own, we actually have biblical texts where, Clay actually does have a mind and mouth of its own, right? <laughs> um, so I, we'll come, I think we'll circle back to that a little bit later. But let's now get into some of the more focused textual issues. So now I'm going to skip to the ESV now because you point out that the ESV 
uh, has translational issues that it concentrates in the way that you don't particularly like, right? Um, so here's the ESV at Romans, uh, Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? So let's focus first on, let's focus on this phrase, endured with much patience, the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And there are three aspects of this translation that you question, okay? Um, In light of the image of the clay and the potter. The first one is endured, right? That translation. The second one is objects of wrath and how we take that. And then the third one is prepared for destruction. So let's first begin with endured. Uh, You you don't like the translation endured, right? Well, tell us what's wrong with endured. What the verb means is the, is the, the thing that's in question. And the verb here is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is the word Pharaoh. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, it's tip. It's a word that just generally means to carry or to bear something, you know, to like bear it on your shoulders or whatever to carry around. Mm -hmm. Um, and, it doesn't mean to endure exactly. Now you can get sort of metaphorically to the idea of endure of, you know, and, and it works this way in English as well. Of, I just can't bear it. Right. I can't carry this around forever is the idea. Right. right. Uh, but, and, and that's where these, these translations are getting the idea of endure, you know, that, Oh, you know, he, he's enduring it in sort of this, it's, it's metaphorically extending the notion of carrying something around uh, uh, for a really long time, and, you know, just working with that. Now, the the problem is that that doesn't exactly get at what the Greek word typically means in this kind of context. So, first of all, I mean, in, in the context of what Paul's saying here, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that God is enduring, you know, a vessel. Well, I mean, what would that even mean? I mean, regardless of whatever my wife might say about things, and you know, you... It, you can't, it doesn't make sense to talk about like enduring a, a clay jar or, you know, a piece of art or whatever. I can't, I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> right. Well, like, how are you enduring this clay vessel? Like that, that, sure. that doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the next thing to do is to say, okay, well, what does Pharaoh mean in this kind of context? And it turns out that, that in a number of contexts, the word, uh, takes on a meaning that's more like produce, uh, which is developing the metaphor of carrying out or bringing out. Uh, and we actually get a similar thing again in English with a woman bears children. Uh, and in Greek, you have the same the same kind of uh, context. Philo uses this term for uh, for uh, the bearing of children. Uh, you have uh, the ground bears plants and and plants bear fruit okay. uh, in the same way. So it has to do with the generation or production of something in uh, in, in this kind of almost wombish way, which right, sort right. of makes sense given God's self presentation uh, in in Exodus uh, with with that same kind of uh, context. But basically, in that context, you have again Pharaoh is used for uh, the metaphor of production. Uh, okay. And I think that's what we have here is something closer to that, where it makes much more sense to talk about a potter producing. carrying or producing vessels right, than right. enduring their presence. Uh, well, you know. Let me ask you, why not carrying? Because I could also imagine uh, a potter carrying, right, the the vessels patiently, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you, you can, and and I think there, I, I think that's not entirely out of the question. But the, okay. but the issue here is that the the image is that the potter is working with clay rather than the than the fully formed vessels yet. Okay. So okay. you know this is where I think the idea is that the potter has the uh the the clay on the wheel and is working with the clay and and you know in in a, in a sense the potter is carrying the clay. You know you're working with the clay with your hands. You're forming it. You're producing yeah. the vessel by bearing with bearing the clay essentially okay. at this point. Okay. And so God yeah. is working with his hands okay. in a, sort of this metaphorical sense, working mm-hmm. at the wheel patiently. Uh, okay. And what I think happened with a lot of translations is you see that God is doing something with the clay patiently. 
and you try to figure out how to make Pharaoh kind of work with that. But I think the idea is you have to understand metaphoric, the, the metaphor first and then understand what Paul's doing with that. And I think the other thing that, that sort of is more definitive here is I think it's pretty clear that Paul chose this verb for this context because it's used in Jeremiah 50, 25, or the, the Greek translation of Jeremiah 50, verse 25, which in the Greek version is in 27, 25, because you've got, you know, Jeremiah's a little funky that way. But mm-hmm. in this case, God brings out his instruments of wrath for the destruction of his enemies. And Paul quotes verbatim that that passage. He just cuts off the prefix of the bring out, and now you just have God bears the vessels of his wrath. And I think, again, by cutting off the bringing, the, the idea of the bringing out is that God has had these vessels stored up. They're, they're instruments of mm-hmm. wrath that he's now going to bring out and use as weapons. Well, in Paul's ca- context, he's actually forming the weapons. And so he just cuts off the, the prefix and you get that different, slightly different meaning and he works with mm-hmm. it. But it's right. and, verbatim and, from what you've got yeah. in Jeremiah there. And that points to the other part of the verse that you're arguing should be reinterpreted, which is the objects of wrath. So explain how you see that. <laughs> yeah, and this is another uh, another tricky, uh, and you know, very, um, uh, very compressed uh, section in in um, in this in this passage. And a lot of scholars have treated this as, uh, and to get a little bit overly complicated here, have treated this as an objective genitive, uh, where you have uh, the of part, the of wrath, is working on the uh, on the thing that it's of as an object. So you have a vessel that is the object of wrath. And Greek, the genitive can work this way in certain contexts, but it can't hear. And the reason that it can't hear is because an objective genitive requires a verbal noun in the, in the place where you would have the, the, the normal noun that is the noun of something. It needs to be a verbal thing, like the speech of something. Speech is a verbal action. It's an action verb, an action word, even though it's a noun. Um, and here, a vessel is not an action thing. Right. This is it's not going to work in the objective sense. Uh, And beyond that, a vessel of something. I mean, we say we use this terminology in English all the time and and it works the same way in Greek as in English here. If I said, hey, can you pass me that glass of water? I'm not saying that that, you know, glass is the object of water. That it's experiencing water, right? Yeah, that it's experiencing water. Like, no, the glass isn't experiencing water. The glass (laughs) is a vessel. It is something that carries water. It has an instrument that, you know, it, uh, it's, it has an instrumental value that, that works that way. And, and I think, again, that's the thing that makes the most sense here, especially, again, given the fact that he's verbatim pulling this phrase from Jeremiah, where it is, an instrumental quality where God is actually bringing out vessels of wrath to destroy God's enemies. They're, they're agents of wrath rather than objects of wrath. Right. And that I think is what he's doing here. Right. Though maybe some of the confusion comes because when you say glass of water, you could also understand that as a glass filled with water. Right. So people are thinking of this as a vessel filled with God's wrath, which starts to bleed over into something like the objective genitive of, of experiencing God's wrath. Yeah, and, and I, I think that that's a perfectly viable way of taking it. And, and by the end of the passage, you have the, the notion, and, and you see this also in the Hebrew Bible, oftentimes the agent of God's wrath is ultimately consumed by that wrath in the end, right? Okay. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, Assyria in Babylon are, are you know, the, the, they're the, the weapons of God's wrath. And then ultimately, what, what happens with them at the end? Well, so I think there, there's room for that. But the primary sense here is that they are actually agents rather than objects, at least in this part of the verse. And I sure. think that's the point of emphasis. Right. So the vessel of water inevitably gets wet. And the vessel of wrath inevitably experiences wrath in the end. Yeah, in some sense, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that works. So, so then we have then in this phrase then, um, to make known his power has not endured, but has produced with much uh, patience the the instruments of his wrath that are made for destruction. So now we're at that third phrase. How would you how would you like to interpret that? Yeah, and 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 of course in the ESV and and a few other translations, this is prepared for destruction, right? This is uh, you know the the NIV as well has prepared for destruction, uh, and. So that's the, what the key, that's the purpose they were made for from the beginning, right? Yeah, that's that. the idea. Is that this is a foreordained state that these 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 pots God made these pots so that He could smash them to show how powerful right. He is. Right. Kind of like a kid who you know built something and then at the end you know gets really excited because now they get to destroy. <laughs> right. Only the kid. The, the only the kid is actually doing so in order to show how strong he is. Right, 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 right. right. So that's sure. the idea. So it's yeah, even beyond yeah. beyond that, right? Yes, yeah. Um, right. so the the the, the first thing I want to want to highlight is that this word, which is uh, the, the Greek word uh, katartizdo, uh, cannot mean prepared. Uh, so just like in English, you have different prefixes that have different meanings and all of this Greek works the same way. And you can see this in the parallel line where you have uh, the, the next verse talks about those who have been uh, prepared in advance for God's mercy. Right. Mm -hmm. And that word is a word that refers to sort of a, a pre-planning. And you can see the, the prefix on that, that's uh, a toimasin. And pra or pro is the prefix that you expect for uh, something that is, you know, done in advance, hmm. something that's planned in advance. And that's what that word means, is it's planned in advance. And if Paul had meant for to talk about these, uh, these uh, vessels being prepared or planned in advance for destruction, he could have just used the same word, but he doesn't. Mm -hmm. He doesn't use a word that, that carries this, this nuance of foreordination. Instead, he uses a word where the prefix is kata. And kata is a, uh, is a prefix that, that represents something being completed. It's, a, it's something that, that happens over time, and is, it's representing the end of that process rather than talking about the the initial plan of that process. And that goes together with then uh, the, the, the general use of this me of this word that he uses here in the new Testament generally, and, and outside the new Testament as well, where the word does not mean to prepare something it's over and over used to rep represent fixing or repairing or amending or um, reforming something uh, that has that has not that is no longer as it should be. So it, it, this is the word that's used in the Gospels, for example, uh, when the disciples are mending their nets. Right? Mm -hmm. They they they're there, and you know they've gone fishing, and you know some of the areas of the nets have torn. And what do you do between all of that? You go back and you fix your nets, you mend your nets. Well, that's exactly the word that Paul uses here to talk about what is that they are. Uh, made for or they, in my my preferred uh rendering of this is that they are uh that they are reformed for destruction and i think the idea here is again to uh to leverage the metaphor of the improvisational potter and and put that together with this notion of okay the end result is this well the potter is working along the way and He's reforming and he's improvising, and this is what he ultimately comes to. This is this is what he chooses as the final product in the end, and I think that's the the sense of this of this word. It's best understood as reshaped or reformed rather than prepared, uh, because it's not that the it, it's not he's not arguing that God sets out with the idea of I'm going to make these pots to smash them, but rather he sets out with something in mind and then sort of works improvisationally to produce something that he, you know, the best thing that he can get out of that particular piece of clay. Right. Uh, and, and this so is the, an, it, yeah, I was just going to say, so this is the main insight, I think, of your article here is that 
people generally read this passage and think that what Paul is using the potter metaphor to do is to exalt God's sovereign power like a potter can just destroy clay if he wants to. But what you're saying is that there's actually a relational nature to a potter's interaction with clay, right? Sometimes the clay has a mind of its own and pushes back and the potter adjusts to that. And can you fill that out with other passages uh, in the Bible where we see more of this kind of clay uh, imagery used where there's this relationship with the potter and the clay? Yeah, and I think the, the, the primary place for that is is one of the places that Paul himself is is pulling on here, and that is Jeremiah 18, which is the sort of center. If you want to talk about God as potter, this is the most extended, the longest, and the most obvious place where that metaphor is applied to God and his people or God and humanity in, in the Bible. And so, uh, and, and Paul, you know, certainly knew this, knew, knew this passage and is, and is working with this. And he's, he's already pulling from, from Jeremiah with another phrase elsewhere. So in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah is told, get up, go down to the potter's house. And I will tell, and I, I will explain something to you. I will announce something to you. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter and, uh, the passage says, uh, as follows. So I went down to the potter's house and look, he was making something on the wheel, but the vessel or the uh, utensil. And again, it's a, it's a, a word that can use, can mean instrument or vessel or whatever that he was making uh, of the, uh, of clay uh, was spoiled or, you know, became uh, it, it was not good. Uh, it fell to pieces in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as he saw fit, as, as, it, as it pleased him to do. Then the word of Adonai or the word of God came to me saying, am I not able, house of Israel, to deal with you in the same way that this potter does? Look, says uh, the Lord, you are like the clay, or, uh, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment... I might say something concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to tear it down, or to destroy it. And if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will turn back from the disaster I plan to bring on it. Or at some other time, I might declare concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom that I would build up or plant it. But if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will turn back from the good which I said I would bless it. So then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, this is what Adonai, this is what the Lord says. And it goes from there and, you know, he declares a, a, a prophecy of warning and he's hoping that they'll heed this. And if, if they change their ways, then that, you know, destruction that's going to come to them is going to be turned back because God interacts with and amends what he's going to do based on people's response to what he what he does and we of course see the same kind of phenomenon in 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 uh in jonah right where you see jonah goes in and he prophesies against the city and they do respond and god relents he turns back from he does exactly what jeremiah says he's going to do and in the case of jeremiah they don't repent they don't heed his words and in jeremiah 19 interestingly you get another potter and clay passage where in this case it's a finished pot and what is he supposed to do he takes this out in the sight of all the people who did not heed his words and he goes and buys an earthenware jar and you got to wonder whether it's the same jar that was just made in the prior chapter but he takes some of the elders and the priests and he goes out into uh into the valley of ben hinom and uh, at the entrance of the potsherd gate and gives the words and what is he supposed to do He's going to, he then takes this and he breaks the jar in the sight of the men and shatters it and says, this is what's going to happen to you now. Well, those two chapters together are essentially what Paul's dealing with here. He, mm-hmm. he compresses Jeremiah 18 and 19 down to two verses and a, and a few quick phrases and expects you to kind of follow along with him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that, you know, verse... 
11 of chapter 18, right after you stopped reading, I thought that had a lot of resonance with the way you're understanding the passage in Romans 9, because it says, look, I am a potter shaping evil. And the Hebrew word there, yatsar, is often used for pottery. So um, like a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. So now that sounds a little bit like the way people often understand Romans 9. Um, but what's being shaped here is evil, maybe these vessels of uh, wrath. But what is the next line? Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings, right? So the idea here is that the clay will respond in light of right. this this purpose that God has. That's or he hopes, whole, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the whole purpose of this imagery is to try and drive a response, not to say, and it doesn't matter what you do because this was a, the potter intends. Right, right. Right. Yeah, and, and, and of course, the next verse is their response of, but they will say, it's hopeless because we're all going to follow our own plans and each of us will persist in the stubbornness of our own, of his evil heart. And you have this, the, 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 the rebuttal of the people is basically like, well, like we have a real, you know, chance of, of doing what you're saying here. It's hopeless. And they kind of blame who, you know, who God made them to be, as it were. You know, well, you know, you made me this way and, you know, asking me to change that. That's just not the way that this works. And right. that results in the judgment. It's, you know, they, they actually essentially, uh, they choose the, uh, not to have God <laughs> make any changes essentially. Right. So this is an engaged uh, yeah. interactive relationship between yeah. God and his people. Yeah, Jason, I have two two follow-ups here. One is, so you take the prepared for destruction that basically the vessel is itself going to be destroyed in the end, it sounds like. Is there a, a way that you could also take this to say, look, it's an, it's an instrument of wrath, meaning an instrument that dispenses God's wrath, which I, you know, I, I like that reading. Um, and then it's it's now been prepared responsibly, of course, it's now been prepared to execute the destruction. You see, instead of it being destroyed itself, it sound, it seemed like in your article, you landed on the vessel itself being destroyed, like in Jeremiah 19, fair enough. But what about this other potential way of reading it? What do you think of that? And if, if that's a possibility, how would hardened Israel in Paul's argument, Romans 9 11, be bringing about destruction? Or even if you don't take the last part in the way I suggested, how could hardened Israel be a vessel that brings about God's instrument of wrath, if that makes sense? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I think your reading is very much uh, in the, in, within the stream of the text. Going back to, Jer going back to, to Jonah, right? When Jonah uh, preaches against Nineveh, he, he comes in with the shortest prophecy that, you could pretty much ever come in with, right? In terms of prophesying against the nation. And, you know, it, in, in our, in most versions, it's, you know, uh, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown or overturned. So that's, uh, I'm looking at it here. That's, that's a, a form of hapach, of hapach or hafach. The form that that, that that word takes can mean a couple things. It can mean to be demolished or overthrown, or it can mean to be changed as in, yeah. like the the heart is altered, that you know that Nineveh will be uh, will repent, as it were, uh, and that yeah. actually, by the way, the second meaning is the more common meaning in the Hebrew Bible. So, here's the question: Is Jonah proclaiming that Nineveh will be destroyed, or that Nineveh will repent? Mm -hmm. There's a play. On, you're suggesting there's a kind of play on words, yeah? Yeah, Jonah is basically yeah. he's saying. And you can kind of imagine in the in the in the thought world of of the, the prophet within the book that he's hoping that it's he's really hoping it's going to be destroyed. <laughs> but right, he's right, basically right. offering them: you're going to one way or another, you're going to be overturned. You're going to be you're going to be changed. You're going to be you're either going to be transformed. Right. You're going to be changed in this way, or you're going to be overthrown. And I right. think that's the same yeah. sort of thing that Paul does here. Paul loves his wordplay. He loves. Yeah leaving these kinds of double op double options open. Okay. And I think he I think he he leaves this open of okay, 
So if we're the potter or if we're the clay and God's the potter and God's working with us and he's forming us this way to be agents of his wrath and so on, just like what Jeremiah says. Presumably, I should say, for Israel to be vessels of God's wrath could mean to be agents bringing about his justice and judgment. Bingo. Bingo. Right. So now, you know, the injustice of the nations is taken care of by the agents of wrath that God has designed to do this. And that's, of course, their function in Jeremiah when God brings out his agents of wrath, his, his, his instruments mm-hmm. of wrath. So that's one option, right? If you, right. If you sub- submit to his hand, here's going to be the function. Here's going to be the way that this is going to work. And the destruction that you bring about will not be your destruction. But if you mm-hmm. do not submit to his hand, then the okay. destruction that you, that, that you walk into is going to be your destruction, and it's your call on which one it's going to be because God is making, okay. is going to bring about destruction. Which side right. of that ledger you fall on is going to be completely contingent on whether you submit to his hand or not. And I think right. that that double, the, the, the fact that you're saying like, this could be read either way. Like, which one is it? I think that's exactly the point. I think that's okay. exactly how yeah. Paul tends to write. I think he, okay, uh, he right. leaves Let me, that. Yeah option he he puts it into the into the passage to say okay so how are we going to respond to god's hand okay let me follow up with another question I, i've typically read the whole god takes out of the same lump or out of one lump what is it in verse 21 uh has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use um, I've typically read it as, so he has this one lump and then out of that one lump, he takes some of the clay and makes a vessel, you know, for ordinary use and a vessel, you know, for special use. Um, but could it be in light of what's going on with Jeremiah? And I may, I don't know if this is what you were, are you suggesting this or is this possible that no, it's the one same one lump of clay can be made into ordinary use or can be made into a vessel of wrath, but then can then be repurposed into another vessel. Hmm. I, hadn't, that, I hadn't thought what, about what it. What do you think that. of that? Yeah, I think it's, I, okay. I think that's a viable reading. I, I had not, I had not actually considered that particular reading, but just off the okay. cuff that, that, that isn't out of the question. I don't think, I mean, the way I read okay. it was that he's kind of pinching off parts of the given, given lump to make into different things. But Right. Um, but I think, again, that's one of those things where you could potentially read it the other way. And, and I think, again, my suspicion is that Paul would go, yeah, exactly. It could work that way, too. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he's starting with the lump. And just like in Jeremiah, it works this way. And with each piece that he might pinch off of that one lump of clay, each piece is going through that same process. So um, I, I think that's that's kind of the idea within the passage. Jason, how does the potter clay metaphor here illuminate Paul's language about Pharaoh when he says that God hardens, right? Hardening language hardens the heart of whomever he chooses in verse 18. And again, I, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that actually that question is what sets up the potter clay metaphor, because the word that he uses for hardening here, scleruno, is a word that makes a lot of sense. And it's used in the context of pottery, uh, because what do you do when you when you finish the, the, the forming of clay? You take it and you bake it in the oven to harden it in its final state. Mm-hmm. So the judgment of Pharaoh is not that Pharaoh is specifically f- formed into this from the beginning. The judgment is that God does not show mercy, additional mercy in continuing to form Pharaoh into something else, like wrestling with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's re- maybe resisting God's hand. And now, you know, God, you know, showing great patience and finally like, okay, well, I'm going to force you into something that you're not. The judgment of hardening is that God leaves you as you are. Mm. That, okay, this pot's done. And once the pot's done, then it's fired, it's hardened, and it, it's not going to change anymore. Uh, and right. the image here is that, that as long as the clay is wet, as long as the clay remains pliable in God's hands, 
then God is continuing to show mercy in, in shaping and forming that, that clay. And the mercy is that Israel in the uh, golden calf episode and other things like that, is it, they put themselves in a position where they could be right there, right then and there cut off and hardened in their state. And that's, that's it. But God continues the mercy that God shows is no, I'm going to keep forming. I'm going to form until Israel is, uh, is, is what I'm wanting them to be as a people. Now, interestingly, the individuals that, that do that, all of those individuals die in the wilderness. So they don't actually participate right. in, you know, they, to some extent, individually get hardened, but the people God continues to show mercy to. So I think that's the idea of hardening that, that Paul is engaging with, um, across this passage and, and, and it sets up this, this notion of how God works in, in the sense of, uh, of clay. So, Jason, uh, to finish off our discussion of the passage, uh, let's come back full circle, as you do in the article, with the question that Paul raises. So, who has resisted his will? What answer does Paul expect us to give here? Yeah, this is, again, this is really important because uh, most translations are going to take this as who resists his will or who can resist his will, which is actually, you know, Paul is quoting a couple of Old Testament and actually there, there's a, a, a section in wisdom uh, that, that has this as well in the Apocrypha, this question of, you know, who can resist or who resists God's will. Paul alters that phrase just a little bit to the perfect who has resisted his will. And that's a different kind of question than who can. This is a mm -hmm. question of empirical. It's an empirical question, right? Has anybody ever resisted God's will? And of course, if you know the narrative, <laughs> the biblical narrative, on the one hand, you're, you're, you're instinctively going to answer, well, no one can resist God's will. But if you know the biblical narrative, you know that the biblical narrative is basically a, uh, it is, it's all about humans flagrantly and repeatedly resisting God's will. <laughs> I mean, this is what Israel does. Like, it's the history of Israel is God tells them do this. And Israel's like, nah. We're going to do this other thing. And then God's like, yeah. oh, come on. No, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to discipline you this way, and I'm going to send you prophets. And, you know, maybe you get a little bit of work in, the, in, in another direction, but then more disobedience. And it's over and over and over again, this flagrant disobedience of God. And so the, this is sort of Paul's answer to say, uh, who, who has resisted God's will? Uh, we have, guys. <laughs> like, that's, that's kind of been our thing. Interesting. Yeah. Great. Well, let's finish up the way that we like to on the Two Testaments podcast and ask our guest for a blurb. So something that you could recommend to our listeners, and it doesn't have to be a book. I know academics love to recommend books, but it could be anything, a, a movie, a TV show, a life hack, anything that uh, you have recently come across and you think others might enjoy. Um, You know, that's a good question. Uh, I think one thing that a lot of uh, a lot of your listeners may find useful is uh, and actually I'm going to give two that are kind of almost three things uh, is there's a YouTube channel called Aleph with Beth. Uh, mm. That is a uh, it's a sort of immersive introduction to biblical Hebrew. Uh, and it's oh, great. It's been done so well by 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 these folks who are, who, who are down in, uh, in in Mexico. But basically everything is they're going step by step, you know, introducing you to the basics of biblical Hebrew. And if you go through this, you actually, if you, if you've had he biblical Hebrew before can help refresh certain things. If you haven't, it actually, it actually does start to stick with you. Um, I mean, my, my toddlers have been loving uh, <laughs> these, these videos and are now asking me certain questions about biblical Hebrew that uh, sometimes I don't remember. So, uh, and they've got a partner channel called Aleph with Angela now, or Alpha with Angela now, um, which is, uh, they're doing the same thing with, uh, with biblical Greek, where okay. it's basically a free resource that you can just sit down with and immerse yourself a little bit in biblical Hebrew. And they've got it where they've got songs, they've got, you know, biblical stories that you're following along with, you know, on there with the words on the screen and then images and you're, you're getting a chance to actually hear it and see it and do this on the regular. I think that's really useful. Um, yeah, I'll just go ahead and leave it at that. I, I think that's a, a really worth worthwhile uh, thing that, like I said, my, my toddlers in particular have been having a lot of fun with. 
Great. So Aleph with Beth on YouTube, which is a genius title. Your name is Beth. Uh, <laughs> it's a great blurb. Thanks, Jason. Well, Jason, thanks for taking the time and uh, to walk us through uh, your argument and reading of Romans uh, 9 verses 20 through 23. It was very fascinating. And thank you, listener, who hopefully you have chosen and you have responded like a willing clay, not resisting uh, to tune into the two Testaments. Uh, and if you have loved being a, a clay, responding to the two Testaments, if you would go uh, on to Apple podcast, uh, you can give us your best five-star rating. That would be much appreciated. And you can also find us on our website at thetwotestaments.com where you can subscribe and find uh, previous episodes on Romans. Thank you. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zellner, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.